Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Sublime. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and this is a podcast that endeavors to explore a full-spectrum spirituality. Okay, so you know, as I say that, I should I should actually give a little um, context here. Uh, this podcast is about three years old now, and when it began, I was intending to focus more or less exclusively on the topics of Yin Yoga. It's a very passive, contemplative form of asana or yoga practice as well as looking at topics of traditional Chinese medicine as it relates to yin yoga and meditation. And as we moved into the pandemic, I really was feeling that the podcast needed to grow, that I myself personally was was much more interested in exploring a broad range of topics that would uh, intersect back or relate to the core themes of yin yoga, traditional Chinese medicine and meditation. Um, and that's what I'm trying to do now with the podcast, is expand the scope to include themes such as trauma, um, shadow work, uh, other forms of, uh, and ways of thinking about meditation, dharma themes, uh, information about fascia. And my hope now is that by covering kind of these broader themes and, and, and having a wide range of uh, conversations with experts about these themes, that you, the listener, will be able to see how uh, these themes can refract into your specific practices, whether it's practice of yin yoga or meditation, for example. So to that end, um, I'm happy to share that a friend of mine, um, colleague David Lasondak, who is a fascial expert. He's been in the world of body work for decades. He's uh, the best-selling author of the book, Fascia, What It Is and Why It Matters. And David just announced to me that he has launched his own podcast after talking about doing this for a number of years, and the podcast is called Body Talk. And um, knowing David as I do, this is going to be a a wonderful resource uh, looking at the physical nature of the body, particularly through the lens of fascia, for any yoga or movement enthusiast. So above and beyond just endorsing and encouraging you to check out David Lasondak's new podcast called Body Talk, uh, David has also agreed uh, to come back on Everyday Sublime to chat with me about um, some new insights about fascia. So what I wanted to reach out to you and the listening audience here is that if you have questions about fascia you'd like me to pose to David, please uh, send those in. My guess is I'll be uh, recording or taping the interview with David in about a month. So we're at the beginning of March, so if you can fire me some questions, um, anything, any hot topics related to fashion in the body that you would like uh, someone of his stature to, to, try, to try to tackle, uh, please send those to josh at joshsummers.net. Josh at joshsummers.net for any questions related to fascia um, in, in our yoga practice. And to that end, too, you can also email me any questions or or themes or topics you'd like me to address in the podcast, as well as uh, recommended guests. A few of you have have sent those on to me. For instance, um, Judith Blackstone was a recommended guest, and she was someone that I really enjoyed speaking to about the intersection of body work, trauma, recovery, and meditation and spiritual awakening. And that was an interview that was posted last year. So if you haven't heard that, please go back into the archives. There's a lot of good interviews um, over the years now that um, I hope people will will, uh, 
review and or reconnect with or, or, or find anew or find afresh and not let those older interviews just collect dust in the, in the digital archives. Okay, now for today's episode, uh, this is a, another Dharma talk that I, I gave last week. Um, and this, this talk is a reflection or continued reflection on the themes of challenging energies in spiritual practice, specifically the hindrances that show up in, in meditation and, and I would say yin yoga when we really endeavor to become grounded, present, and still with our experience that inevitably we encounter energies that, that, that thwart that journey. Um, desires, aversions, ill will, restlessness, all those difficult energies. So to, in today's talk, I, 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 I try to cover an aspect or manifestation of will, ill will which can be directed at oneself. And that often arises when we, in the course of our practice, we open to recollections or memories of karma that we've created, actions that we've created in the past that have been harmful to oneself or to others. And often there's a sense of remorse, regret, and, and even sometimes shame around the, those unskillful actions. But as I try to get into the talk, the theme of the talk really is, boils down to a phrase that I heard for the first time from the senior teacher Larry Rosenberg, which is that in, in meditation practice or the Dharma practice, we're really learning to take bad karma, either bad karma that we've created or bad karma that we've received as a result of other actions of others, we take bad karma and learn to turn it into good dharma. We learn to see it as it is and learn to understand the, the, the causal or conditional relationship among variables that gave rise to this experience. We, we get greater clarity on the karmic mechanism, and in doing that, we turn the bad karma into good dharma. And from good dharma and good understanding and the development of kindness, wisdom, and compassion, we... Uh, we allow ourselves, or we, we create the conditions whereby we can become better agents of karma. We become a, better able to perform good karma going forward from understanding the nature of, quote-unquote, bad karma. So that's today's talk. I, I'm calling the talk uh, Attuning, Atoning, and that's a nod to a three-word uh, three Teaching, I remember hearing from Ken Wilber, who said, you know, in practice, we attune to the way things are, we atone our relationship to the way things are, and then we ultimately start to experience at one So there's an attuning, atoning, and at oneing. Um, so without further ado, I give you today's talk attuning and atoning. been doing since the beginning of the year is I've been offering a series of reflections about a collection of difficult mind states that in Buddhism are referred to as the hindrances. They're sometimes thought of as the, the obstacles or the unwanted, uninvited energies that make practice, and I would add, make our life challenging. And Unless you think, if you, particularly if you're just joining in, you think, okay, is this going to be a few months more of Josh droning on about the difficulties of practice and kind of you know, sort of a, a, an indulgent way that is just sort of celebrating the challenge or celebrating the hardships? Um, and to that note or to that end, I just want to say that one of the things I've appreciated or come to appreciate about the Dharma, and, and I'm just using that term broadly to refer to teachings that 
help us transcend challenging parts of ourselves or challenging issues in life and realize more wholesome, inclusive, um, more enlightened attributes of being. So it's not just Buddhism. This could include the yoga traditions and, and, and all the contemplative spirituality we find throughout the world. But um, one of the themes that I've come to appreciate about the Dharma is that no matter what theme you pick up, you know, if you take one small piece of it, in this case, the piece of the hindrances, when you start to look deeply into the nature of the hindrances and the, and the, and the, and the dynamics of the hindrances, how they work, and, and what we can learn about ourselves vis-a-vis -vis that theme, when you look into it deeply, you start to see that it contains the entirety of the Dharma within it. Um, so for an, as a simple example, um, it's often said that the core of the Buddhist teachings and the core of his own Dharma was the, the series of reflections I, I spoke about last year on the Four Noble Truths, sort of the, the experience of, of discontent or the experience of dukkha, of stress and suffering in our life, the cause of that discontent, uh, how it, what, what factors support its arising and its perpetuation in our life, and then in seeing the cause, developing skillful means or skillful ways of which whereby we can abandon those causes and experience a piece of being that's not driven by those compulsive behaviors um, is one way of putting it. So we, we can appreciate or apprehend in our own experience a, a quality of peace, a quality of well-being, a dimension of ease and happiness that's, that's not driven by conditioned habit patterns. And then uh, what we're all practicing is a path to realize that experience, to come to come into intimate contact with that truth in our own being. So, if you—that's the the meta framework for the for the practice or for the Dharma. If we look at our individual uh, experiential relationship to sort of addictive desires or to uh, harsh uh, states of ill will and hatred, which we're moving into in, in this week's talk. Um, if we open to it, we can see very directly how painful and how hard those energies are to be with. And in, in opening to the truth of that, we can start to see uh, the mode or method, method by which we're relating to those conditions. And in seeing both the experience of those conditions and seeing the, direct, the, the manner in which we're relating to those conditions, the insights arise spontaneously around how to shift and come to a, a better development or better relationship to these things in one in a way that doesn't perpetuate the suffering or, or, or cause further suffering for ourselves or others. So any any theme that we pick up will can can take us into the heart of, of, of where this path leads. So I don't feel bad. I, I actually feel, one of the things I've been feeling in, in course of preparing for these talks is that I've really appreciated in a kind of semi-self-congratulatory way I've appreciated the pacing that we're going at. I've, I've really enjoyed opening up this theme and, and, and not putting a set amount of time, whether it's four or five weeks or six weeks or whatever. I, I appreciate not bracketing it with a, with a designated amount of time, but letting it open and be explored um, by all of us in kind of an organic, natural way and, and sort of just seeing where it, where it takes us. And so... Um, Really, as I prepare these talks, I more or less review my notes and I and what got said and discussed last time, and see what might I what what's left on the table that needs to be addressed or spoken to and, and developed. And um, in preparing for this week's talk, I did the same thing that I normally do, which was to review last week's talk. And 
for those of you that weren't here, for those of you that might not remember, um, in that talk, I, among many things, one of the main thing I try to do is was share a, a real example from my own practice life uh, when I was on retreat, when I got into a, a, a kind of conflict of sorts with another person on the retreat. And, and that's referred to as a vendetta, a Vipassana vendetta. Um, sort of the, the 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 interpersonal drama whereby you just don't like somebody and, and it's often not for specific reasons it's sort of just a vague intuitive sense you just don't like the person you're not sure why but in the in the example that i did give there were there were clear concrete reasons for my um, ill will towards this person there was, and it revolved around the fact that he felt like i had used the bathroom that he was uh, scheduled to clean he felt i used the bathroom at a time that was um, not a designated time for bathroom use, but it was designated time for bathroom cleaning purposes. And I was, I was, I was obstructing, I was sort of a hindrance for his yogi job. And, um, <clears throat> and if you will remember too, this particular man, uh, had the, uh, the, the fashion sense of, of dressing with a, a, a sort of a uniform of a polo shirt, whereby the, the collar of the polo shirt was always, uh, pulled up. On, so it's on edge or on, on, on vertically lifted. Um, and, and then I described kind of, and this is the thing that uh, I, I really want to speak to now was that um, in the talk, I heard myself when I reviewed it, I heard myself share with you kind of uh, fantasies of revenge that visited me while I was on my meditation cushion. And I know some, some of you chimed in and wrote, shared with, with me over email that you too have witness yourself be kind of um, consumed by righteous rage at someone sitting one cushion in front of you or two cushions to the side of you when you're on retreat. That's sort of the way it is. Um, but in sharing my, my, my fantasy revenge scenarios and I, in reviewing them, I, I started to feel very uncomfortable. Um, and, and the reason I started to feel uncomfortable is I realized those fantasy revenges that I shared with you weren't factually accurate <laughs> in that they were gratuitously embellished fantasies that really bore no similarity to what I lived through when I was on that retreat. And I described the, the physical sensations of what it would be like when I saw this person, how my heart would pound and my my breathing would get shallow or erratic and I'd start to sweat a little bit. I kind of had this physiological response to him. And of course I felt a lot of shame towards myself for violating the, the, the bathrooms scheduled uh, usage time, time frame and all of that. But there were two things that I shared that I, I just couldn't, that were clearly fictitious and I couldn't make sense of where and why they came out the way they did. And if you if you don't remember, one fictitious now we, we all know it to be fictitious. Now one fictitious revenge fantasy was that I would break into his room when he wasn't there, steal all of his polo shirts, bring them to the laundry area of the retreat center, wash them or launder them. And then starch the collar so it would be very, very difficult for him to, you know, extend the collar up. That was one revenge fantasy. And, and the thought that occurred to me is that you all, all of you lis listening to me and witnessing me share this, believed it. 
Nobody emailed. Did that really happen? So it occurred to me that you, you know you, you more or less took my word for it, which means you all see me as a person capable of that <laughs> of that outcome, which is kind of hilarious in a way. Um, but it it, it 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 troubled me a little bit. I was like, you know, do they really think I'm would I me their their Dharma friend and 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 yoga friend would I be capable of that kind of ridiculous revenge? The second revenge fantasy was that I would uh, lock him in one of the bathroom stalls while he was washing or cleaning the toilet. I don't know how I would actually go about doing that, but I had that, that, that fantasy revenge. I shared that as a fantasy revenge that I would lock him in so that he wouldn't be able to deliver the tea to the monks. And I might be able to volunteer and take over his, his um, monk attendance duties. That also wasn't true. I wasn't locking anyone in a bathroom. Um, close to the time when I was at a boarding school, there was one instance at a, at a rehearsal dinner for a wedding where I may or may not have locked the bride's father into a toilet, but he was really bothering some people and he needed to be kind of held accountable to that. But never since, or hopefully in the future, have I ever thought about locking someone in the bathroom. So I really sat with that for a bit and I thought, why on earth or how did these fictions make their way into my talk? And I started to think about it, you know, really sort of, I, I, I reflected on the, the, the kind of fiction that they were, like the tone of them and the, the silliness involved with them, um, sort of the attitude that they represented and I realized in reflecting on it this way, I could see what I would identify as two strong, uh, likely conditions of influence that may or may not have conditioned my mind to generate these fictions. And one is that uh, I, for many years, really since I was a, uh, a, a wandering Dharma bum in Asia, and I was a, also in elementary school in India for a year, but it was in that year when I was in India that I discovered the British author, comic author, P.G. Woodhouse. Um, and P.G. Woodhouse, if you haven't read him, has written over a hundred novels and, and, and musicals that, uh, where he wrote the, um, like the libretto for the musicals. But he, he was a great comic mind and he had written these novels where a, a large percentage of them focused on the bumbling idiocy of a very privileged um, aristocrat named Bertie Wooster, Bertie Wooster. And Bertie Wooster is always creating these problems for himself where he needs to get sort of relieved or saved by his sagacious and enlightened valet named Jeeves, his, his butler named Jeeves. And in reviewing like the idea of stealing into a fellow meditator's bedroom and, you know, laundering their shirts so to the point of starching them. That's clearly, if you know P.G. Woodhouse, that's got P.G. Woodhouse fingerprints all over it. So that's like straight up Bertie Wooster. Um, and same with even the locking in the bathroom, I would say, would qualify. But there was something that about Bertie Wooster's uh, predicaments that were always benignly harmless. Like there was something delightfully fun and frivolous and, and light about them where no one would actually ever get hurt. And I realized that there was there was something a little bit darker and more sinister to my revenge fantasies. 
and they, that there was sort of like a, power, a lust for power where I wanted to really put this guy out of commission and knock him out of commission so I could sort of take over his, um, his position on the retreat as, as the attendant to the monks. And seeing that power lust, I realized another condition that might be influencing my mind at the moment is the fact that um, as a way to transition and detoxify from our toxic politics and, and, and kind of news addiction that I've had over the last five years or so, um, Terry and I have been watching Game of Thrones. I was going to say rewatching. I never really watched it in the first round, but we've been watching Game of Thrones. Um, and I'll have more to say about that later, the Dharma of Game of Thrones. But in looking at my revenge fantasies, I could see some, some potential influence from the character of Tyrion Lannister. Very witty, sharp, um, but also capable of kind of a, a sharp wickedness to him. Um, anyway, I, I could see those conditions and, and, and more or less realize that that's probably what happened, happened at that time in the talk. That at the moment I was starting to talk about my ill will and dislike of this particular yogi, Bertie Worcester and Tyrion Lannister collided in my head and out came this, this, this fictitious fantasy. And I realized that, as many of you may have experienced at some point in your life, that in some ways I was a bit of an unreliable narrator to my own life. I first heard uh, Bertrand, uh, Bertrand um, who's the guy, he's the long-haired mystic now, he has his own podcast, uh, blanking on his name, but I want to say it's not Bertrand Russell, but it's something, it's a name like that. Anyway, if it comes to me, I first heard it from him. He said, he said, you know, I realized I was an unreliable narrator to my own life. And in recognizing that, I had a bit of a mind moment or two around the fiction. And I felt a, a, a period of, of great self-criticism where I was like, what was that about? Why was I doing that? Why was I spinning in, in a very important Dharma talk? Why was I injecting false falsehood. I didn't feel good about it. Even though the falsehoods were relatively frivolous, I still didn't feel good about that 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 levity and, and inaccuracy. And the more I reflected on it, I could see that part of me was was trying to in a way maximize entertainment value as a way of trying to drive the point home. It's like if I could be funnier, more comical then the point will, will be made. Um, but as I reflected further, I started to see what I think of as the Dharma within this experience. And this is, this is how I, I'm trying to redeem the whole experience. This is why I'm spending the whole time reviewing it a little bit. I started to see the Dharma in this very experience. And by that, I mean, I could see how karma was playing out in this process. And karma just very loosely means actions and their results. Actions and their results. In a kind of simplistic slash Mickey Mouse way, uh, people often think of karma as a kind of deterministic law in the universe where there, for, for whatever we're experiencing now, there's a singular previous experience that's causing it to come to be right now. So if, if I'm experiencing say pain there's a specific cause in my near or recent or not so recent past that's causing that pain if 
I go outside to my car tonight and I find there's a parking ticket on my car, one view of karma would be that, well, I did something negative some point in the past that is now coming to bear fruit within that, that the retributive um, justice of karma. So I'm getting my just desserts now, getting the ticket. But karma, at least the way it's often framed in Buddhism, is not that simple. Um, and the, the basic gist of, of the Buddhist sense is that we can't account for all the past causes or the past conditions that are coming to ripen right now. There's a near infinite number of past actions, past causes, past thing, uh, experiences that are ripen, coming to bear and ripen right now that are shaping what we're experiencing. But then when we're present, when we're aware of what we're experiencing, we are better able to be sensitive to what we add to what we're receiving, what we're inheriting. And the more sensitive we are to what we're adding, we can see how what we add is conditioning our experience in positive ways or negative as our response to what we're receiving leading onward in better way better dynamics or safer dynamics or calmer more peaceful more more understanding dynamics or are we perpetuating cycles of uh, confusion ill will agitation etc and one of the things that i have been reflecting on for the last while now is that and this isn't really spoken of so much in buddhism um, at least in my understanding of buddhism at the moment but one of the things i've been reflecting on is that when we act we often act not fully aware of all the conditions we're engaging with or all the factors within the field in a certain sense we act in a way that is some to some degree influenced by a kind of perceptual distortion or a perceptual blindness even you know the idea of us having uh, perceptual blind spots uh, that we don't necessarily see uh, when we're acting and 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 for that as an example for that i would just ask you to think about maybe or reflect on times in your life when you've had a lot of conflict or had experience with a, a strong um, state of uh, sort of disharmony with another person or a group of people, and how a lot of times when you're in that, there can be a very strong self sense of, uh, I know what's right. There's kind of a righteousness within that. They, this other person's just clearly confused. They don't see things clearly. I have got the objective perspective that I need to make sure is asserted so that things work out okay. And you can be in the dynamic like that, but then after some time, whether it's a day, a week, a month, a year, or a decade, it doesn't really matter how long, I sort of, I've witnessed myself come around to these situations in all those time frames. But at some point, there's a looking back and realizing, oh my goodness, I didn't see that these other things were at play and that that's not really what that person meant and that I projected this whole thing and whole story on them and that determined how I responded and engaged. And there's a sense of, oh, I can see something now in hindsight that I wasn't capable of necessarily seeing or recognizing when I was there. And that often can bring about a real sense of regret. 
and I, I, as I was reflecting on it for this talk, I, 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 I started to wonder whether, and I, I think this has got to be true, but I leave it to you to, to, to assess. I wonder if, if uh, regret itself is one of the great human universal experiences, something that all people and all cultures and all parts of the world experience, where we act in a way and then see that there's consequences of that, that action that we didn't intend. That we didn't that we didn't aspire to, or that we don't hold uh, um, in alignment with our values, and there's a sense of, of regret from that. Um, now, regret's a, a, a big theme, um, and I'll probably spend more time about it in another talk. But often, what happens with with regret, and this is um, I'm sharing some some insights from some of my uh, very senior teachers that I've worked with. But when we experience regret, regret, there can be a way that our mind crystallizes around the experience in a way that we start to judge ourselves as a bad person for doing whatever the behavior was. So in this more frivolous example, I could get really harsh with myself for, for, for confabulating around what really happened in my mind in terms of revenge fantasies. I could get a, a critical and harsh on myself. I'm a bad person that I have this truth problem. I don't know speak the truth. I always bend the truth um, and don't let the truth get in the way of telling a good story. That seems like a character for flaw for me. What's, what's that about? Why do I keep doing that? Why do I have that problem? And so as we crystallize around the regret, what, what becomes instantiated, what becomes reified within that is the me that has the problem. The me that was is is bad was bad will always be bad, and and um, is is the problem. So what I'm what I'm moving to is that this takes this can take form or can manifest then as kind of a, a reflexive kind of ill will towards oneself. So I'm just speaking very generally, but if and when we like uh, encounter memories primarily is what I'm speaking about tonight, but if we encounter memories from the past that, that create a sense of cognitive dissonance for ourselves, they, like the memory doesn't reflect um, or line up or seem congruent with our self-image or the way we want to be perceived. There's a, there's a discrepancy between the data from the memory and, our, uh, and who we think we are and what we want to be. That can turn on itself and become a kind of ill will. At least this is what I've seen in myself and I'm speaking, hopefully connecting uh, to something in your experience that um, you can recognize. And, and so that's that level of ill will that I wanna begin with or and continue on from last week. Reflecting on and being sensitive and starting to notice when there is a movement in the heart that expresses a kind of ill will towards oneself foreseeing, let's just say loosely negative karma. Like, why did I, I'm so bad. Why did I do that? That kind of thing. And, um, and just so you know, this is not the only form of ill will or hatred that can arise. Um, as I made a short list, I can imagine there's ill will that relates to historical things from your life or historical things to the species, uh, the history of our species. There's all sorts of conditions within that history that could um, spark ill will towards uh, humanity in a way. 
Um, there's contemporary forms or kinds of ill will, which probably have historical antecedents, but um, I've received many emails from people that are really struggling, and I am too, so I, I don't want you to feel like you're alone, but struggling with uh, feelings of ill will to the in, in the face of um, the violence, uh, toxicity, and and ill will we are in turn seeing in our in our fellow um, I would say citizens, but we're not all from the same country here, uh, but fellow members of of humanity. And then ill will can can obviously take form as 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 and be directed at oneself or directed at one, one at someone else. With all these forms, and particularly the one that I'm referring to tonight, which is the, the movement towards Ill, uh, Ill will towards oneself, something that I'm going to introduce now and, and open up in much greater detail next week because it needs to be opened up. But there's a beautiful story that I remembered um, today. And the story is... That I, that I remembered is is from the Buddhist teachings. It's it's in part of the early early suttas, but it's a it's about a particular student of his, who before becoming his student, so this guy before he became the Buddhist student, his name was Angulimala. And Angulimala, which I'll I'll tell you more about him next week, how he got his name and what his name was before, and some of the conditions that led up to this this moniker that he that he was known by. But Angulimala literally means one who wears a mala made of fingers. And Angulimala, uh, see, uh, Game of Thrones is coming back here. This is straight out of Game of Thrones, if you if you watched it. But this particular guy, um, and I'll go into the details around why next week, but this, this guy was essentially a serial killer. And um, as a way of keeping track of his killings so he could prove it to the person he needed to show who all these people he had killed. Um, he would take his victim's little right finger, which is what he had been instructed to do, but he took their little right finger and, and stitched it into a garland around that he wore around his neck. So he was, he was um, really gruesome <laughs> in, his, in, in how he um, went about his life. And so Angulimala at one point was in the in the forest where he was living and he saw the Buddha uh, approaching. And I'll tell more about the details of the story next week, but essentially he tries to pursue the Buddha, but even though the Buddha was walking at a slow pace, and even though Angulimala was very strong and known for uh, his physical ability to, to run faster than all, all or, or most of the animals alive, he couldn't catch up with the Buddha. Couldn't catch up with the Buddha. And finally, in utter frustration at his inability to cap, catch up and capture the Buddha and extract one of the Buddha's fingers, he shouted at the Buddha, stop! Stop where you are! And the Buddha stopped, turned around, and he said, my dear sir, I have already stopped. It is you that needs to stop. And then he gave a teaching. He says, I long ago have abandoned ill will, harm, taking up the path of kindness and compassion. You are still driven by hatred and harm. And at that 
moment, and, and this is where I'll, I'll try to get into maybe some of the things that have that that that, that kind of catalyzed in Angulimala's mind and heart. But at that moment, he asked the Buddha to for ordination. He asked to become a monk. And in becoming an ordained monk, he became, he put the practice into his own life. He, he applied the practice to his own life and he attained full awakening. He became a saint. And so I'm going through this in fairly broad brushstrokes, but I tried to present an example of just one of the many things that I can be harsh to myself about. And my guess is if you look into your own mind and heart, there's probably one or two things that some of you have that are harsh to your own self or you're, you're harsh with yourself around. And so I want us all to know about Angulimala, that even though his karma was as bad as we can imagine karma to be, he was able to come in contact with the teaching, to put the teaching into practice and to be radically transformed by that encounter. Years back, um, when I was teaching at a, a yoga studio in Boston called Back Bay Yoga, um, for a while I was bringing some of the uh, teachers I knew from the Insight Meditation Society. I was bringing them to Boston to give a Dharma talk or a, a day long uh, retreat practice at the yoga studio. <clears throat> and uh, one of the teachers is still the, the resident teacher at the Insight Meditation Society named Chaz de Capua. Um, and some of you guys know him. But Chaz is a wonderful teacher, and he came out for a day long. And during or after a talk he gave, there was a Q&A, and I had a friend in the back who, who was attending. And my friend just raised his hand and, and in very blunt language said, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm listening to you, and I realize I've done some really shitty things to people in the past and i and i'm really having a hard time with some of my actions and chaz said i appreciate you sharing that's really important but he said look he said you gotta realize that if you could have done something differently you would have whenever you acted in a way that you now regret if you could have done something differently you would have and he went on and i don't have the exact wording I totally uh, word for word, but the gist of it was whenever we're acting, we're acting out of the predominant conditions that are active in our mind. So if ill will is predominant at that moment of action, that infuses and informs how we act. When kind compassion is predominant in a situation, that informs how we act. We aren't a monolithic actor. We are an actor that is shaped and conditioned and influenced by all sorts of variables. But Chaz continued to, in his teaching to my friend, he said, you are now training your mind in this practice, and we're all doing this, but we're all training our mind to better understand the root causes of kindness and peace, as well as understanding the root causes of hatred, confusion, and suffering. This practice opens us to that insight directly. It's a path 
and a practice that moves in one direction from distress, confusion, and pain to a a realization of peace, understanding, and freedom. So as we practice together tonight, it's not uncommon for memories to come back. And I just want you to be as compassionate and gentle to yourself if it happens tonight or some other point down the road, there's a memory, a situation that comes back online. Remember Angulimala, or Angulimala, sorry. Remember that the practice you're engaged with is a path of purification. It doesn't matter what we're experiencing. What matters is how we come to see and relate to what we're experiencing. When there's something positive, when there's some temporary calm, joy, love that we feel in our being, we can look into that and start to understand more closely and clearly what causes that we are within our reach, what causes support those qualities of being. And when we feel confused, uncertain, fearful, hatred, ill will, we can see those conditions and understand what fuels them, what supports them, and ultimately how they are put aside or put to rest. So no matter what the content is, whether it's positive or negative, there's tremendous learning available to us if we're willing to be with our experience and and look into it closely. And that learning is a is a process of becoming what the, the, the word I've been using in, in yin yoga for a long time now um, is that we're developing karmaception. We're developing a perception of karma in our own life. And we're becoming more skillfully karmically aligned. We can start to see the causes of real peace, real goodwill, real compassion, and we can start to see the causes that, that erode those. Okay, that will conclude today's Dharma talk. I hope you find the reflections helpful, uh, thought-provoking, and inspiring, deeper reflection in your own practice, and I hope it serves you well. I'm going to sign off for now, and until I see you next time in the podcast, I wish you all the best. Stay safe, and don't forget, if you have questions about fascia that you'd like me to pose to David Lasondak, please email leave those to me soon so I can get those in for the interview in about a month at Josh Summers or Josh at joshsummers.net. Thanks so much for listening today, guys, and I'll see you soon.